Morning, everyone. Children's Church can go ahead and be dismissed. You can kind of see some of the signs up here. Uh, this last Friday night, Thea and a couple of others organized a prayer service. Uh, we kind of surround, or they kind of surrounded that with uh, domestic violence uh, service that goes on uh, here in uh, Carroll and all the neighboring counties, and so. It was a good time. Uh, it was a good time of prayer, and Darren Kozak and his wife were here to lead some worship. It was great worship. Um, uh, but anyway, it reminds me, let's start out with prayer today before we get going, and uh, let's just ask God to give us better eyesight, open ears, uh, pliable hearts, and all that good stuff, right? Father in heaven, we are truly gracious for the day that you have given us. Uh, You give us every day. God, you've also given us your scriptures. And I pray now, just as I said, that we would be open to them, to let them teach us maybe afresh today. But God, not only let your, your scriptures teach us afresh, but give us ears to hear and hearts that are afresh to it. And hopefully that we can become more attuned to it today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to, a little disclaimer today, uh, or let me just start with this. Um, I'll invite you all to a live church tonight. We've got uh, Phil Claycomb coming. He's going to preach, and uh, he is going to kind of kick us off with our discipleship sermon series that we're going to do the next following weeks. I'd uh, love to have you there. He's going to be way better at it than I am, so <laughs> he'll give you some good information on discipleship, but I'm going to kind of wet your mouth a little bit today because part of discipleship is to interpret the Bible correctly. Uh, we're not, not just that, but our purpose in interpreting the Bible correctly is so that we can come to a knowledge of Christ. That's a huge one in Paul's mind. He wants us to be formed in Christ and come to a better knowledge of him. And that way, our spiritual life's going to be a lot better. We're going to have a stronger, more closer relationship to God, uh, and things are just going to go better. So he wants us to be formed in Christ so we are closer to Christ, just like I'm closer to you guys today than I normally am. Is that all right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what I'm going to do today is a little bit of a crazy thing. I'm going to go down a list of things that we have not interpreted the Bible very well about. It's going to give us new perspective. It might kill a couple of our sacred cows. Those are all good things, right? So that's why I prayed, give us hearts to hear. And hearts to hear, ears to hear, hearts to listen. All right, so here's the first one. I'm gonna put it up there. You've heard it. We're gonna take all of our thoughts and make them captive to Christ, right? Now, that idea is something that I recommend, but when we find that in the scriptures, I'm I'm gonna show you what is around it And we'll see that it's a totally different meaning than what I just gave to it. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, Paul says. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready... To punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. All right, so rather than cognitive behavioral therapy where you and I do mental gymnastics, Paul here is talking about, I'm coming. 
And all you crazy people with all you crazy ideas about Christ, (laughs) I'm going to demolish those ideas. I'm going to take those ideas and make them captive to Christ. Because if they're not, then we're going to lead people astray. So he says, I'll be ready to punish. We're going to straighten all the ideas out, is what he's saying there. So Paul's getting his... He's getting his war on there. He's fighting. He's ready to fight. That's 2 Corinthians, by the way. That's where Paul really gets pastoral and his heart just comes out. And he kind of just says, I'm sick and tired of people bringing up crazy ideas about Christ. So I'm going to demolish them. New perspective on that verse? I would still recommend you try to take your own thoughts captive to Christ. But that's not exactly what he's saying there. That's my point. So a new perspective, Paul wants to kill all the bad ideas about Christ. Every church really should want to do that, but do we got the gumption to do that? Well, today, I'd like to go down a list and maybe demolish some of them, okay? Once I get down there, I'll probably move back up because the tomatoes might start flying, and I don't want that, right? I got my good shirt on today. Um, All right, so... Just by way of example, uh, to, go to, to follow on what we've got there, parables. You know from Sunday school class, right, that parables were tricky little nice stories that Jesus told to try to teach his points, right? Well, you and I, reading our Bible 2,000 years later, where those parables are defined for us, yeah, that's what they serve as. But when Jesus was actually saying the parables in his day, it's a completely different thing. How many of you would believe me when I told you that Jesus began to speak in parables about halfway through his ministry for the purpose of kind of hiding his message? Does that sound crazy? That's what he does. Let's go to Matthew here real quick. The disciples came and asked him, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? Why do you speak to the people in parables? Just cut it straight to them. And he replied, because I speak in parables, because the knowledge of the secrets, the knowledge is so important. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have the knowledge, even what they have, knowledge-wise, will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. So Jesus begins to speak in parables, not so much to teach, although that's what you and I get out of it, he began to speak in parables for the purpose of going dark. And he did that because he loves people. And the people just came out to the lake to hear him and see the show and to see the miracles. And he knew that would never get them to the place in their spiritual life that they should be. So he went dark to try to draw it out of them. Isn't that pretty cool? He's a lot smarter than you and I. You would think... Just preach the message because you want people to understand, right? So all these people coming out just to see the show. I don't know why everybody's going out there. All the guy does is just tell stories about plants and seeds and coins and stuff like that. I don't know what the big deal is. 
Well, to those who hear and know, more will be given. It's all about the heart. And he goes dark with parables to bring out your heart. Unfortunately, you and I, reading 2,000 years later, where the parables are designed, designed or defined and deciphered, we don't get it that way. New perspective on parables? How about a new perspective on Jesus? He's way smarter than you, isn't he? He knows your heart way better than you know your heart. And he's constantly trying to draw your heart closer to him. And he'll do whatever he needs to do to do that, even if it means shrouding his message and going dark so that you pursue even further. He'll do that. This is why we say that the things of God are spiritually discerned. You have to come to them with a heart that desires to pursue them. Otherwise, you're really not going to find. Maybe you've got some family members or some close friends. They just don't see it. They just don't get it. They're not there in their spiritual journey with their heart to pursue yet. Keep consistent with them because God hopefully will bring them around and maybe their heart will come around and the parables and all of the teaching won't be shrouded anymore, but it will come to life and God will do a good work in their heart. All right, let's go to the next one. Not the next verse. I'll go ahead. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And they dropped their nets, and they followed. Simple as that. You've probably heard a message or a sermon that said, Ah, you see them, guys? Jesus just walks right up, says, Hey, Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men as opposed to fisher of fish. And look at their faith. They just dropped their nets and they just followed. You should have a faith like that. You should drop it all and just follow Jesus, right? Well, there's some other stories in the other gospels that add some perspective to this. And when you piece them all together and you run a little bit of a timeline, we can see that Andrew and Simon had been with John the Baptist maybe for a couple of years listening to him. And then once John the Baptist, whom they trusted, said, there's Jesus, the lamb of the the world that takes away the sin of the world. There he is. Then they began to trust John and follow Jesus in what he said. And they were able to spend six months with Jesus down and around Jerusalem, walking with him, talking with him, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles in Cana where he turned water to wine and a number of other things. Six months with Jesus, they went back to fishing. Then Jesus came and called them. They had plenty of time with Jesus to understand his teaching, who he was. And so when he finally came up, they were able to say, yeah, I'm going to follow. Maybe they were even looking for it. I'm getting a little tired of fishing. Jesus comes with a commission for them. And he had spent time with them. He had invested in them. And they were fully ready. This is not blind faith. Don't ever let a minister tell you you just need to have blind faith. You can sort through the scriptures. Sort through everything Jesus said. You can even work with your doubt and let your doubt make you pursue it even more. This is all okay. Don't let anybody misinterpret that for you. 
It wasn't blind faith. They knew full well who he was. He was no stranger. And so, yes, they dropped their nets and they followed. Check him out. Go slow. He's got you on a journey. And he who started your journey, he's the author of your faith. He'll bring it to a completion. No hurry. Study him out. Make sure. And then you can drop your nets and follow him as well. Here's another one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going. I wouldn't have told you that I was going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be, may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. You maybe heard me talk about this one. I think I mentioned it a couple months back. But we got this grand idea that there's a big, big mansion up in the sky waiting for us, right? God's building it, or Jesus is building it, and he's going to come take us. Well, here's a question for you. To what building standards is he building that mansion up there? Is it a mansion for first century Christians? Is it a mansion for Christians today? I mean, is there going to be running water and that sort of thing? Or what about in the future? All right. It's kind of funny. I saw a cartoon just this past week that uh, had a woman saying, I can't wait for my mansion. Uh, it's so good of you to go build the mansion up there. And Jesus said, yeah, sure thing. I'm working on it. And then the lady said, but, you know, about the countertops, Jesus, can I have a word with you? <laughs> and Jesus replied back to the lady, hey, don't you think my standards are good enough? It's kind of funny. It's a kind of funny thing. But when we look at John 14 and we look at those surrounding verses, what we hear Jesus really saying, if we don't misinterpret this one right, we hear him saying, I am going away. The spirit is going to come back and that's me coming back to you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to live inside of you through the Holy Spirit. So God's house that has many rooms is you and you and you. We are all God's house. That's what he's talking about there. Not a mansion in the sky. He's going to live in you. You are his house. I'm just thinking here with the ladies in the church, I should probably not say you are a house. Not a good idea, huh? <laughs> That's what he means. He's going to live in us. So let's not misinterpret that, all right? Because... Am I going to go to hell because I believe there's a mansion in heaven? Absolutely not. But what I might miss out on by my misinterpretation is the fact that God lives inside of me through his Holy Spirit. He's empowering me. He's guiding me. He's bringing life to my bones inside of me. And we might lose that in our misinterpretation. All right. Okay. Now. I'm in my list in my head. I forgot which one. Ah, right here. This one right here. Communion. I'm going to throw this verse up there from Corinthians. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Oh, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay? What would you do this last week? 
What secret sins, what strongholds you got there? You need to take a look at yourself before you do this right here. Because this is important, right? If interpreted correctly, here's some more scary. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So did you see that? It says to examine yourself, but it also says to discern the body of Christ. This body, but also the rest of the body. The surrounding verses around that verse, I don't have them, but it talks about how the people would get together for the Lord's Supper and they would get drunk. (laughs) They would be pushy pigs and they would push in line to the front of the line of the supper. And Paul says, about the Lord's Supper, I don't have anything good to say to you guys. So he says, don't drink, eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He's not talking about your unworthiness. He's talking about the way in which you take and eat the supper. Don't get drunk. Don't push in line. So for them, it was an actual supper. For us, it's not that. But this is not about your unworthiness. Your unworthiness needs to drive you to fly to this table. This is for you, not against you. Just as this God is for you, not against you. God isn't a checkmark God up there, checkmarking everything. He's a God that saves, a God of mercy who came to die for you. And so if you did something this last Friday night, or if you got a stronghold you've yet been able to tear down, you need to get here. This is for you. That's a big switch from what we might have just misinterpreted there. Don't eat and drink of this unworthily. That's an adjective, not an ad, it's an adverb on how you eat it, not an adjective on your, a description of you, a noun, right? A little grammar I threw in there for you. No extra charge. You need to come here because this is for you as a sinner. It's not against you as a sinner. Wow, we could really misinterpret those scriptures and cause a whole host of trouble, right? I used to know a guy who said, I had some trouble with a friend. He betrayed me and I just could not forgive it. And for the longest time, I wouldn't even take communion because I was struggling to forgive him. Wrong thought. If you're struggling to forgive, come to the one who forgave you. Experience it. So then you could better give it to somebody else. So I hope you haven't been held back by a misinterpretation of the scripture. Let's demolish that one right now and let's fly to the table because all of us as sinners desperately need it. And that's what it's here for us for. Here's a scriptural example of how we misinterpret things and turn them against us. Aren't we all a little bit crazy when it comes to interpreting the Bible? Because for some reason we think the Bible. And so there's some orb around it and there's some super spiritualness to it and so ah geez us with our when we don't have our theological degrees and doctorates and we've yet to write our theological treatises i just don't know if i'm just gonna read it and i'm gonna try my best and i'll just listen to everybody else right well that's what they did in the old testament when it came to the sabbath right the sabbath they got to the point where when Jesus, speaking in the synagogue on the Sabbath, healed a man's withered hand, 
on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and all them guys, they accused him of doing work on the Sabbath. You might remember what he said. What's, what is better, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Of course you do good on the Sabbath, right? Why wouldn't they heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath? You guys are nuts in the way you have interpreted the Old Testament scriptures of the Bible. Well, are you sure about that, Jesus? Because I can show you in Numbers. I don't have it here. I'll just quote it for you. I can show you in Numbers where they found a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And so they put him in custody because he wasn't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they couldn't figure out what to do with him. And God himself said to Moses, you take that man outside of out of the the company of the people and you have the people stone him to death because he gathered sticks on the Sabbath. That sounds pretty scary to me. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did everything. They, They began to make laws on how you observe the Sabbath. You might remember in the Gospels reading about a Sabbath day walk. There was only a certain distance you could walk. And they would pound little pegs into the path to tell you, "Uh uh-uh, you can't go past that peg because that's more than a Sabbath day walk. And if you walk past that peg, you are working on the Sabbath. Pretty crazy, right? And Jesus comes along and to demolish strongholds and crazy thinking like that, he has to say something like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's got catchy little phrases to try to jar us loose of our crazy thinking and our golden calves. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's only a small portion of the populace that can't hear and that are deaf. So that's not what he means. He means your ears have to be attuned to what I'm saying to fully catch it. And so with the Sabbath controversy, do you know his little phrase? I think you got it. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You have forgotten that God has given you an example for you to rest your body. And you've turned it into a host of dumb rules that's so much more of a burden than... than, That's the whole reason he gave you the Sabbath was to take the burden away. We do that with communion. Communion. We interpret the scripture to say, oh, I'm unworthy, I can't take communion. It's not it at all. The communion is there for you. The Sabbath is there for you. Now, certainly, the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. So yes, certainly we should observe it. Uh, And for you and I, that means, yes, one day a week, we come, we worship God, we have a day of rest, good Sunday afternoon nap. Who's opposed to that, right? Do you feel guilty about it? It's there for you. It's there for you. Somebody maybe put that idea in your head. Guilty. But hey, if we don't observe the Sabbath or if we don't get good rest like God told us to do, it's going to catch up with us physically. They didn't. They didn't observe the Sabbath rests for the land 70 of them they missed. And so later on, God sent Babylon, took the people of Israel to captivity into Babylon for 70 years, one year for every Sabbath rest for the land that they missed. So it'll catch up with you if we don't do what God says. However, we can't forget in all of that, oh, we can't be scared of the Sabbath. Just observe it. 
and gather in the rest that he wants you to have. We have some crazy ideas, don't we? All right, here's gonna be the big one. I better go up here. Here's the big one. This might trample on some toes, but let's just come with a little common sense, okay? This one is what, in my opinion, is not a good interpretation. It's this, salvation by faith alone. Now, that comes from the book of Romans, where Paul over and over and over says, we are saved by our faith. He never says faith alone. You can never read that in the scriptures. And that's a poor interpretation of the book of Romans. Yes, we are saved by our faith. But Paul's emphasis in the book of Romans is that we are saved by our faith as opposed to the law. So he's trying to emphasize faith as opposed to law. He also says in the book of Romans that you're saved by confession, by repentance. He also alludes to baptism where that happens. I read last week, Peter say, you are saved by your baptism. The exact words. How do we reconcile all of that? We can read in James where we're saved by our works. Ladies, Paul says in 1 Timothy, you are saved by childbearing. We just have a whole bunch of babies, right? Go to heaven. Now it says, ladies are saved by childbearing if you continue on in your faith. It says about baptism, you're saved by your baptism through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, on the first day of the church when Peter preached, they said, oh my gosh, we killed the Savior. What do we do? How do we be saved from God's wrath? Repent and be baptized, he said. Repent. God is just basically saying, hey, if we're going to do this thing, we got to start it off right. So, the Bible ascribes a number of things. Belief, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, works, childbearing, and calling on the name of the Lord. And there's probably some that I missed. It ascribes all of those word for word in salvation. So what do we do? What do we do? We have to kind of come up with a big bowl in front of us and let's call that bowl salvation soup. We have to have all the ingredients in there. If we interpret the scriptures to say faith alone, we are leaving out some of the ingredients and we're not going to have good tasting salvation soup. Faith alone is never, ever written in the Bible. And now, it sounds like spiritual semantics or scriptural semantics, maybe perhaps. But what are the dangers in this? Faith alone says that what you need to be saved is mental assent that God is there. Well, James says, even demons believe. Good for you if you believe God's there. But there's got to be something else, right? It can't just be mental assent. And Paul in Romans would never have said it's just mental assent. So let's let James, the half-brother of Jesus, explain this to us, okay? But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe, faith, that there's one God. Good. The demons believe that. 
But that faith actually causes something in them. It causes them to shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete and saving by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And one more. Oh, the next one's the big one. Can somebody look it up real quick? James 2, 18. I'll just let somebody else read it for dramatic effect, I guess. James 2, 23. Yeah, do you got it? Oh, yeah, there it is. Mm, no. Oh, there we go. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay, so you and I who don't have our theological degrees and doctorates and we've yet to write our theological treatises, we could just come for a common sense look at the Bible and say, wait a second, how could James, the half-brother of Jesus, inspired by God to write the book, how, if he believed we are saved by our faith alone, how in the world could he ever write that? He would never write that. So let's go back to our big bowl of salvation soup and let's just get all the ingredients in, friend. That way we won't lead anybody astray whatsoever. Okay, so faith alone has come to this. We can sit down, we can say a prayer and that prayer shows that we believe, we can ask for his forgiveness and we are saved. I think one of the ingredients to salvation is that prayer. We are calling on the name of the Lord. That's part of this. We are praying to God, I need you to save me from my sins. I want to be righteous. I want to go and spend eternity with you, God. So the prayer is part of it. But when we say faith alone, we make the prayer the only part of it. And that's where we're going to get hurt, right? Because then we're leaving it at mental assent. So let me illustrate it by the next one. You believe in Lucifer, right? Mental assent that Lucifer is there. However, it's not caused you to do anything or serve him or walk after him or try to obey his standards, but yet you believe he's there. That mental assent didn't do anything for you to urge you into a deeper relationship with Lucifer, did it? All right, now let's destroy Lucifer, okay? If anybody should be destroyed, let's destroy him. We get the idea of Lucifer from Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, he's writing about the king of Babylon who's going to come against Israel. And he calls the king of Babylon the bright morning star. And he says, you wanted to ascend to heaven and then you were thrown back to the earth and into the pit. You were the bright morning star is what he calls it in Hebrew. Jerome, writing in 100 BC, translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Latin for all the people in the empire. And when he translated bright morning star in Hebrew into Latin, it's the word Lucifer. Okay, Lucifer is just the word for bright morning star. Now, Mike and I were 
looking at the stars after a live church last Sunday night, and there was one out there. It's Venus, the brightest one. And he asked me, hey, which one is that? And I said, that's Venus. If I was thinking, I would have said, that's Lucifer, the bright morning star. Lucifer just is the Latin word for bright morning star. But we have developed a theology that there was an angel named Lucifer who got a little too big for his britches, and God said, that's it, you're done. I'm throwing you down to earth. Became a serpent and deceived Eve. Lucifer, bright morning star. Now, is that really the case? Let's look at Revelation here. Listen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Would John, the disciple of Jesus if he interpreted Isaiah 14 and the bright morning star to be Satan, Lucifer, would he have ever written that about Jesus? And would Jesus have ever said that about himself? It's a misinterpretation. It's a misinterpretation. Isaiah even says that the bright morning star was on earth, wanted to ascend to heaven, and God threw him back down. It's that, that, that even goes against the traditional belief that Lucifer was an angel already in heaven and got caught, thrown down. The person in Isaiah started on earth and tried to go to heaven and set himself up above God. There is no Lucifer. There is a Satan. Absolutely. Does that demolish, get a new perspective? So your neighbor when he comes over to invite you to the church of Satan and say, oh yeah, we worship Lucifer and we do this and we do that. Why don't you come out and check it out? You can say you worship not what you know. There is no Lucifer. That is a Christian tradition. All right. So Jewish John says that Jesus is the bright morning star. He would have never said that if he believed that Satan was the bright morning star. He would never have confused those. And you can look at all of the Jewish interpretations of Isaiah 14 and not a one of those Jewish people who know their Hebrew would ever have read that and thought, oh, that's Satan. Not a one of them does. So the idea of Lucifer is a misnomer. Is that a little weird to you? Open up the ears and the heart and just let good biblical interpretation help us out here. Now, certainly, there is a devil and a slanderous Satan that is wanting to attack us. We should probably learn about him as much as we should so that we can understand all of his attacks on us and we can shield them off. But I'm sticking with this bright morning star because I know that the one in Isaiah was just a king on earth that tried to become the bright morning star and it was nothing that we should develop an entire Christian doctrine around. All right. Speaking of Revelation, who was it written to? It was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Who was it written for? All of us. Okay. If you and I interpret the book of Revelation in any way future to us, we are going to be in trouble because it makes it absolutely worthless to the people that it was actually written to. 
Okay, so this might sound a little bit harsh, but the book of Revelation was not written to you and me. It was written for us. So our proper interpretation is to interpret it in light of the people it was written to, and then you and I can then take it as a template off of them and apply it to our life. And in this way, we've wonderfully demystified it, and we can actually understand it. For instance, the beast has seven heads. And it tells us that the seven heads are seven hills that it sits on. Later on, it calls itself Babylon, the great city. If you put that together, the city, the great city of Babylon at the time was Rome that the book was written. And everybody knew that Rome sat on seven hills. So the whole book is about how the Roman Empire would persecute those first century Christians. So the book was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor and it was explaining to them, it's going to get really bad for you. But the whole purpose of the book is to stay strong. Otherwise God will come and take away your lampstand. Stay strong. Don't give up on Christ. He will rescue you out of it and he will come and rescue you from it all. It starts with a great throne vision of God so that all of us can understand that no matter what happens, God is on the throne and is in charge and nothing happens that he doesn't allow to happen. What a great interpretation. Just to say it was written for them to help them through what they were going through. But I can lift out of it and help myself through what I'm going through. I can get the message that no matter what happens with the economy, no matter what happens with coronavirus, God is going to be there and he's in total control. That way, you and I won't interpret that there's only 144,000 people that get to heaven. I don't know. If there's 144,000, I'm not in, I don't think. That's not very many people. The Jehovah Witnesses interpreted it that way until their denomination began to have more than 144,000 members. Then they had to change it up a little bit. But what we can do is we can say, you don't take numbers literally in Revelation because it's apocalyptical literature. You weigh numbers. That 144,000 is broken down into 12,000 in each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you weigh those numbers and we understand that 12 is kind of a whole number in the Bible. We can just simply say this, that God knows all who are going to be saved And he knows that they come from every tribe and tongue and it's a perfect number. He knows it and he'll see to it that they are saved. Otherwise, we're going to come up with all kinds of crazy, crazy interpretations of that book. We could be like Hal Lindsey who said, those locusts in the book of Revelation, those are Russian helicopters. Or we can see... We can see pieces of the Roman Empire coming back together. And there's the European Union. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Well, Brexit put a big hole in that one, right? And the European Union really doesn't have any power. So no, yes, there's a Roman Empire in that book, but it's the Roman Empire that persecuted the people that the book was actually written to. So we just demystified it with good biblical interpretation Interpreting it by all that's written in the Old Testament. I know that's a little bit that's a little bit complicated, but it doesn't have to be that way. God's on the throne, and no matter what the enemy, the dragon, 
sends our way, we're ready for it and we can get through it because Christ who rides on the white steed is going to come and save us. There's also an interesting one in there. How long, how long, O oh God, before you redeem our blood, the saints say. Wait a little while longer is the answer. So whatever you're going through, just wait a little while longer. It's hard, but he's on the throne and he's coming. All right. All kinds of misinterpretations of the Bible. Discussing with a friend this last week, not this last week, but recently. He's a Catholic friend. He's a very high view of Mary. He also has a very high view of the church helping us to interpret. And he's saying that personal interpretation of the Bible is very dangerous. That's why we need the authoritative church to help us interpret the Bible. Hey, we just listed a bunch of personal interpretation dangers, right? We get all hornswoggled with our personal interpretation. But so can the authoritative church get us all in a quandary, right? (laughs) And he says, look, Ben, Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, look in Revelation. There you have John seeing the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And then the very next verses talk about the woman who was about to give birth and the dragon wanted to steal the child. So you got that right there. And then, Ben, you know this, you know this. When Jesus' mom, Mary, went to go see John the Baptist's mom, the baby leapt. John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb because he knew what was in Mary's womb. And if you go back to the Old Testament, Ben, where David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, he was dancing and leaping. You see the connections there, Ben? Uh, Ben, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. Mary said, everyone will be happy for me and celebrate the fact that I'm giving birth to the Messiah. Sure, what a unique privilege for that wonderful woman to be the woman who gave birth, right? But you know what? He says that's a prophecy that all of the church should give homage and even worship her because of that. She's prophesying that the church would do that. Well, do you know there's a bunch of births in the Bible? I'll just give you one. There's Sarah. Remember when Sarah found out in her old age she was pregnant with Isaac? She laughed. She even named her baby laughter. That's what Isaac means in Hebrew. And she said once it was born, now everybody will celebrate and laugh with me. So I said to my friend, isn't that a prophecy? How come we don't observe that prophecy? We don't laugh with Sarah. I'm trying to help him see that what Mary said, everybody will take joy with me because I'm the, I'm the mother of the Savior. That is the happy exclamation of a woman who's about to give birth and what's more, the birth to the Savior of the world. It's a happy exclamation that every woman would have done in her, in her shoes, not a prophecy. And that prophecy, or you, that interpretation of it being a prophecy has led you to Crazy ideas that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know. We can get in all kinds of trouble when we do these things. But we can take the scriptures just simply as the love letter that God intended it to be. And we can calmly and collectively 
interpret it. Now, we need somebody else. We're going to need some people. But the problem is, some of those people have already probably put us off onto the wrong trail. So we need several people. But most off, we need you reading it, studying it, asking God to help you interpret it correctly. Those new perspectives, some of maybe I gave today, but the new perspectives of the word, if our ears are able and our hearts are pliable, those new perspectives bring us life. And when that doesn't happen through improper interpretation of the Bible, we get stuck in our spiritual ruts. Mom and dad said this, so I'm going to say it. Let's break the chains from mom and dad. Let's come afresh to the scriptures. Just you, God can lead you to the truth, whether it's from mom and dad or somebody else or whoever, but we can get there. But let's not lose track of the fact that the new perspectives of scripture can give us a new perspective on our life and we can kill the sacred cows and sacred cows won't even come along because we have already established ourselves in the scripture and we are alive And as an alive person, I'm not going to succumb to the temptation of sacred cows, favorite verses, and favorite theologies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do need your help in this because there's so many ideas out there. God, I pray pray that we could be able to demolish them I pray that we would have the heart to fight to demolish them. I pray that we would pursue, that we'd have the heart to pursue you and to pursue knowledge of you. God, open up our hearts to new learning about you. And at the same time, Father, protect us from anything that would lead us astray. God, let's come to with common sense. Help us, help us, Father, in all of this. And we pray in your name, amen.